It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome once again, everybody, in the front row. I am your host, Mike Vaccaro. Behind the scenes, as always, JR Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. This is a CLNS Media Network podcast. Be sure to check out clnsmedia.com for more great shows. We also invite you to subscribe, to like, to share our show as we continue to bring you great guests, including our guest today in episode number 67 is Jeremy Roenick, one of the best American-born players to ever play in the NHL. He shares his story with us, which includes 20 years spent in the NHL and what he's doing now, a lot of side projects once he retired. Our guest, episode number 67, it is Jeremy Roenick. Well, Jeremy, again, uh, thanks for spending some time with us here today. We appreciate your patience. I know we've tried this a couple of times. Finally get to hear your story as, as one of the best uh, American-born NHL players in history, right? So for you, for that to be the case, born in America, you're born in Boston, raised there, grew up there. What are your <coughs> early memories of, of Boston and, and where sports and maybe in particular hockey was in the early days for you? Well, it started when I was three or four years old in Connecticut, actually. Um, I was born in Boston, and my dad worked for Mobile Oil and was an area manager. So he he moved around the country quite frequently. So from the time I was born in Boston until I was 13, I lived in three, three different towns in Connecticut, uh, Texas, Rochester, New York, and Virginia. So six six cities before I was even 13, before I went back to Boston to start my my prep school uh, career at Thayer, Thayer Academy, McPrep school years. So, you know, I started playing hockey in Connecticut and it just is one of those things where I stepped on the ice. Uh, I was actually there to, uh, to keep my little buddy company who was starting hockey because his mom was afraid that he would quit if he didn't have a little friend with him. My dad was a soccer and football guy, so it was never a hockey family. And I got on the ice and I just never left. And it just, um, it was hard to get, you know, for my mom to get me off the ice at times. I mean, she had to literally come onto the ice and chase me around the ice to try to get me to come off. It was literally that much of a passion for the game. And, um, you know, like I said, I was, I was very fortunate to uh, to grow up in a very hockey-oriented uh, neck of the woods in New England. And, um, you know, I just, it just it was one of those things. Everywhere I went, I seemed to get better, play against older kids. And, you know, I was a, a super adept at scoring goals. And uh, my dad always made, made sure that I was the, the best skater. You know, I, I, when I always tell kids what's my biggest, my biggest suggestion for kids when they're starting or when they're younger, and that's take a lot of power skating classes, learn how to skate, learn how to skate properly, learn how to skate with, you know, use your edge as well. Because I always say everybody wants to use the puck, right? But it's... The puck doesn't matter if you can't get to it, and it doesn't matter if you can't do anything when you get with, with when you get it. So, you know, skating is the most important part. And I was very, very lucky to be able to be a very good skater early, which uh, kind of led to everything else um, coming into fruition. But uh, I was very fortunate. Like I said, I played in a lot of good teams, scored a lot of goals, played with some great players, and uh, won two national championships as a Bantam back to back with the New Jersey Rockets, and. Um, you know, then had my high school days with Tony Amonti at Thayer Academy. Um, we had uh, just an amazing team. We won two New England State, New England, um, New England championships in prep school. The one championship being probably the most watched high school championship game of all time between Thayer Academy and Avon Old Farms with Brian Leach um, back in 1985, 86. So pretty special times as a young kid and, you know, Pretty much my 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 career just continued as from a kid. Yeah, you were on a big stage early on. I want to go back. I, I, I had read or seen somewhere when you were seven years old, a chance encounter with, with Gordie Howe. How did that impact you and, and your love for the game of hockey? Well, I, again, you know, I've always been very, very passionate about the fans, whether they like me or whether they don't. It didn't matter either way because I knew that they were the they were the, you know, the key and the, and the rock behind pro sports. You know, pro sports wouldn't be pro sports without the fans paying their, these people paying their hard-earned money to buy a ticket. And these days, very expensive tickets 
to come watch us play what we love to do and play our sport in in these big arenas. We just if it wasn't for the fans, we'd just be a, a local beer league with the designated beer guy. You know, that's it. And um, so I always knew that, but I I realized that at a young age, like you said, at seven, I was in Hartford when Gordy Howe was playing with Mark and Marty for the Whalers. And um, it just it was a Saturday morning. We just finished my game, and the Hartford Whalers were coming on for their morning skate at our local arena where they practiced. And all us kids get to the we get to the glass. We get our stuff off, and we're all hanging over the glass in awe of watching them shoot the puck and seeing our idols on the ice. And halfway through the practice, Gordy Howe comes by, scoops up a whole bunch of snow on his stick, and dumps it on my head. And you know, winks at me and then shakes it off my head. And that, I thought it was the coolest thing at, at the time. And I still think it is. I'm 53 years old. I'm still telling the story. <laughs> but I remember how much of an impact that Gordy Howe made for me and how how great it made me feel. And for him, it was nothing. For him, he was just having fun. For him, he was just, you know, doing what he does. And and it was it was not even a thought in his mind and I knew at that point that, you know, as I was getting older and what still remembering that that situation with Gordy, uh, I can I can create so many great stories and I can I can make so many kids happy and uh, I can give souvenirs with pucks or sign autographs or just stop and say hi and ask questions and let them ask questions of me and give them 30, 40, 50, 50 minutes of, of my time, if not more. Um, that will last a lifetime for people. And I truly believe um, my, my, my gracious, my, the, the graciousness of fans is very, very important. And I want them to know that I respect that and appreciate that. And I've, I've never, never forgot what Gordy Howe taught me at such a young age. And now at 53, there's not a day that doesn't go by where I don't get the stories from somebody that I touched along the way. So it's paying me back in dividends now after my career that makes me feel, you know, that I did something good by making sure I, you know, I did well. What, what kind of bothers me is my whole career, a lot of people see me, you know, through the media mm -hmm. or they see me um, as the media wants to portray me as, you know, the controversial one or the one that's, that's egocentric and the guy who's all into himself and an asshole and blah, blah, blah. But I can guarantee you, if if you met the the millions of people that have met me in person, or have had the opportunity to cross paths and maybe have a conversation, or maybe just a passerby in an airport, I can guarantee you that um, you would have a hundred percent an agreement that I am not what the what the media has portrayed. So. And is that something I'm sure you you talk to current guys and you know younger players as well? Is that something that you relate to them? That hey, again, be one with the fans because it's going to be rewarding for them and obviously for you as well. Always. I mean, I've I've remembered I've remembered walking through um, a bunch of fans and seeing a couple of young guys just walk and not sign autographs, and I'd literally turn around and tell them, "Hey, get back there, sign a couple autographs." It's 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 don't you know. Don't uh, don't ignore them. Don't don't shoo them off. Uh, it'll come back and haunt you one day. Um, you don't want to be known as that player who doesn't sign autograph or who's an asshole. Um, and it, I mean, that's it's not that that bothered me at the, at the time that the media, you know, kind of portrayed me as the villain, which is fine. I mean, I, I that's but um, I think it's kept me from a lot of a lot of um, a lot of things because of because the media is so dishonest and and evil tell you the truth and we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on but again you're born in 1970 so 1980 the u.s olympic hockey team you've got a couple of guys from boston university we were lucky enough to have mike ruzioni on here previously did, did that yep. have an impact on you as well for your for your love of the game and your passion for the game uh it was the it was the driving point um because when you're when you're 10 years old you're just playing you really don't know what the olympics is you really don't know how big of a deal pro hockey is. And even though I was a big Boston Bruins fan at the time, um, watching, watching Mike Ruzioni score that goal, watching the team, uh, you know, defy every odd imaginable. Um, 
and knowing what it was like at that time. I mean, I had a game and I was dressed in all my equipment watching that game. And as soon as that game was over, we all raced to the arena. And it seems like every car came into the parking lot at the same time. And it was, we were about 10 minutes late for the game, but there was nobody that was there pretty much on time. And, um, you know, there was, there was 30, 40 Mike Ruzioni's on the ice that, that after that game. And, and that's what, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's really what propelled USA hockey mm-hmm. uh, because it, it motivated guys like me and Chris Chelios and Brian Leach and Mike Medano and, uh, you know, Billy Guerin. I mean, these guys is that, that were my age at the time. And I think it all culminated in 1996 when we won the World Cup. I think in 2002 when we won the, when we won the silver medal against Canada. I mean, being against Canada at that 2002 Olympics was – it was like everything came to, you know, to a peak, you know, for 22 years later after that gold medal here in the United States is now a superpower in hockey playing against their arch rival and the home of hockey, which is, you know, Canada sport and playing against Canada. So it was really cool, but it, there's no question if, 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 if that 1980 team doesn't win that gold medal, I think USA hockey would have taken a different path for sure. And for you, again, as you said, playing for the U.S. as well, what does that mean for a player when you're playing for your country? You've had a great career in the NHL, obviously, but to play for your country as well, what does that mean? Well, it's everything. I mean, I'm a very patriotic person, almost to a fault. Um, You know, I get extremely, extremely upset and angry when I see um, disrespect of our flag or disrespect of our country or disrespect of our anthem. Um, or disrespect of our military or people saying, you know, that they, that they don't like America, they don't like our country and so on and so forth. It really bothers me a lot because I ha- I've had the opportunity of wearing the red, white, and blue and, and representing them on the world stage. And obviously when you play for a city, you play for those, those fans. For the red, white, and blue, you're representing 335 million people who are all rooting for you. So there's obviously a lot more at stake and a lot more pressure, but a lot more pride in that. I mean, granted, you know how many people play hockey in this world and the fact that I'm one of 20 that's on the, uh, on the biggest stage in the world um, is pretty, pretty magical for me. Yeah, it certainly was, as you said, uh, on that stage, a great career. But you go back, you said Thayer Academy, great success there. And then you're drafted out of high school to go to the NHL. That's, that's a rarity, right? So what was that experience like for you to be drafted coming out of high school and, and, and have all that notoriety at that time? Well, it was scary. It was scary because I'm, I'm 155 pounds in 1988 at the draft. And it was not, it was not uh, usual um dealings that the national hockey league drafted usa high school kids i mean mike madonna was the number one draft pick of that year but he went to prince albert Mm -hmm. he went and he went and did with all with all the nhl uh teams and and scouts and management would want him to do is go play in major junior in canada so he can get developed the right way i stayed in high school Uh, i think there's only four maybe four guys that ever came straight from high school into the National Hockey League, maybe five. I, I know of Tom Barrasso. I know of Phil Housley. I know of Bobby Carpenter. Um, but I, I don't really know anybody else that have had the ability to come right out of high school. My crazy thing is I came out of my junior year of high school. I didn't even finish my senior year. I left after my junior year, and I was 158 pounds. And it was the scariest thing ever. Because I'm going from high school hockey to where guys, you know, are barely, you know, barely going through puberty. And now I'm walking into an NHL locker room where guys have more hair on their chest than I have in my whole body with scars, no teeth and receding hairlines and look like they should be in prison. <laughs> That's a big change in terms of what, you know, what kind of style of hockey you're going into. And um, I felt very fortunate. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about the draft. And the Blackhawks are getting ready to draft number eight. And they didn't know who to pick. And I was ranked in the middle of the first round that year. But a guy named Jack Davidson and another gentleman named Sean Cody, who were the top scouts for the Blackhawks, as they're sitting around the table, 
and it's their turn to pick. And Jack Davison and Sean Cody both look at Bob Pulford and the rest of the team at the Blackhawks table and said, listen, this kid is available. If you don't pick him, we quit. Now, Jack Davidson's been around for you know 10, 20 years for the for the Blackhawks. And he put his he put his whole his whole job and career on the line for me and said, You don't draft this kid, we're gonna quit. And I heard that and I, I obviously my um my appreciation and love grew even more for them, but it also added some pressure to me, yeah. you know. And um, those those are things that drove me a lot of times. And um, I was very thankful for the Blackhawks for drafting me, but even more thankful for Jack and Sean to literally, um, you know, put the, put up their, their livelihood. And that's how much they believed in me. So I felt very fortunate to be able to uh, make them proud. So you knew about that when you got drafted as a junior out of high after, school? You talk about pressure. After, after, yep, after. Yeah, Sean Cody told me that afterwards. And Sean Cody is a Boston area guy, so he was the guy that scouted me the most. Okay. And um, um, yeah, so he he had informed me later that you know after the draft that that's what happened, and I was like, oh my god, this is this is crazy. Well, this is in 1988. You make your debut in October 6, 1988. You you remember that against the Rangers and what that was like for you? Yeah, I remember. I was I, I threw up in the locker room before the game. <laughs> And um, uh, I felt awful. Uh, didn't, I did not play well in my first four games, which is why Keenan came up to me after the fourth game and asked if I would be okay with going to play a couple, a couple months in, in juniors and get a little bit more, some more reps against some good players and kind of build myself up. Because going from high school hockey right to, the, right to Chicago was, was, was very difficult. So I ended up going to Hull, uh, the major junior, Quebec major junior, and lighting that, lighting that league up. I think I had 74, 75 points in 27 games. There's something crazy like that. And then tore apart the, uh, the world juniors and then came back to, to the Blackhawks. They called me up in an emergency recall situation uh, with the Hawks. They had too many guys that were injured and too many guys in the minors were injured. So they brought me up from junior, which was allowed then. And that's when I scored my first goal and I scored the next three games. And then Keenan didn't want to send me back to junior. So he made sure he told the trainer, Hey Gapper, make sure that the guys that are hurt, make sure they stay hurt. This kid's going to, this, this kid's going to stay here for the rest of the season, which I did uh, ended up having, you know, 24 games in my first, first year due to a couple injuries. And I had like 18 or 19 points in 24 games in my first season. And then was up for the rookie of the year the next year because I think 25 games is the rookie limit if you play under 25 games you're you're eligible to be a rookie in the the following year so and I had a big year my my, in my rookie year and just you know it just seemed to continue to accumulate after that well that call up in 89 you go to the playoffs right you you had a winning goal against St. Louis after you got lost your teeth and you had 15 stitches there's something about hockey guys what made you want to come back and and just Keep going, keep going, and, and and you had such a big performance, a big goal. It's, I mean, first of all, it's in my nature. Winning is everything. Um, you know, I, I think that year of, of where I was and who I played and who I was surrounded by, and um, you know, my coach Elaine Vigneault in in in, in Hall was very tough, uh, very demanding, as was Keenan. But then you get a chance to play in the playoffs of my first year. Right, my my first um, my rookie season, 1989. So it's 88, 89, and playing against St. Louis, which was always wars and battles. And I remember um, in the second period, Steve Larmer's skate in the in the corner. We got t- kind of tussled up in a in a scrum, and his skate comes up and hits me, cuts me for 15 or 16 stitches in the side of the nose. And then I battle I battle in the third period with uh, Glenn Featherstone, who was you know eight feet tall and he went to cross check me and cross check me right in the mouth and all my teeth fell apart in my mouth and literally all the pieces are in my on my tongue and i'm yelling at carrie frazier i'm like carrie that he just knocked my teeth out he just he just cross checked me in the mouth he goes no he didn't no he didn't and i opened my mouth and stuck my tongue out and all my teeth are on my tongue 
And so there was no denying that he that that I got cross-checked in the mouth. So he goes to the box for five minutes. I go to the box for two minutes for roughing. As soon as I come out of the box, there's like eight minutes left in the game, tie tie game, and I get in front of the net and tip in a, a goal for the winning goal um, in that in that series. And we had, went on to win that series and go on to the conference finals against Calgary. Um, lost to Calgary in the conference finals. Uh, they won the cup, but it was an awesome experience. And you know, you learn to play through adversity. You know, it's you play through pain. You got to do things that are that are not in your nature. And I learned that at a very young age. And I got it was kind of, and I know I'm talking a lot, but it's it's it brings back just a lot of memories. It's your 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 reputation gets created at certain points. What kind of person you're going to be? What kind of player you're going to be? Who who you know who are people going to rely on you on? What are you going to play through? That specific incident, when I came back with my teeth gone and my, they said, okay, this kid, this kid's tough. This kid will play through any kind of adversity. And, and I showed that my whole career. So it's just natural. Yeah, I was going to add that. I mean, doing that in your, your rookie season, getting the call up in the playoffs, it, it, they had to set a tone for the player you were going to be and the respect you were going to get from not only your teammates, but probably your opponents as well. Oh, no question. It, that that was definitely the springboard. That was that was the springboard that started the the kind of the reputation. But I had to keep it up, right? I had to continue to, you know, to be the the physical player, to be the which I was never physical before. Mike Keenan almost almost you know strangled me, <laughs> and then made me become a physical player at 160 pounds now. So you know I had to keep it up. You know, it's consistency is important and. You know, when you're hurt and you're making $100,000 a year and, you know, somebody's waiting to take your job, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you played with sprained ankles, you, you played with concussions, you played with separated shoulders and broken toes. You know, those things didn't keep you out of games because um, if somebody came in to take your job and did better than you, you, you have to fight to get it back, which is not an easy thing to do. So once I got it, I did everything I can not to relinquish it. Yeah, I think 80s, 90s pro athletes, certainly a different brand than, than what it is today. And so 89, 90, you get called up full time with, with the Blackhawks. Did you think that you were going to have a 20 year career from, from that point on? I, you don't think about it. I mean, when you're playing, you're playing and you're having fun. You know, you're you're concentrating on winning every single night. And I'm telling you, it's unbelievable how fast it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in 1992, we went to the Stanley Cup finals against Pittsburgh. And Steve Larmer said to me, hey, kid, we got to win this series. We got to win this championship because we might not get a chance to do this again. And I kind of laughed at him. I'm like, I'm 22 years old. You know, I, I, I went to the, the semifinals two times. Now I'm in the Stanley Cup final. I'm going to have loads of opportunities for this one. And <clears throat> nope, I, it was my only one I ever went to. And I say that to a lot of young kids, take advantage of the situation and the opportunity that's ahead of them because you might not have it again. And But it is amazing how fast the years just shred by because we're so lucky to play a game for mm-hmm. a living. And even though it's very, very difficult, it's very painful, very stress-related, when you're with the guys – when you're, you know, you're traveling with the boys and you're having, going out and having great dinners and, you know, battling together, winning or losing, the, the time literally goes by really fast. And 20 years went, you know, like a blink of an eye with me, but I never thought it would be 20 years. And I'm, I'm surprised that, and that how durable that my body was and how much I could withstand. And, you know, I would think that I'd be in a wheelchair right now at 53, but I still, you know, feel great. And, you know, don't have too many, too many wounds uh, to lick right now. But I just hope it stays that way. Was it a different, more physical game back when when you played than, than what we're seeing now? There is no physicality now. I mean, barely. I mean, you barely see anybody hit anybody hard these days. The fighting is gone. Um, the tough mentality is gone. Um, you see very few people with the the ability to play through injuries. Uh, you know, they're more likely to take five days off for a, you know, for a, you know, an injury that could probably just keep them one day. Um, you know, you have a few exceptions like Matthew Kachuk, obviously, like mm-hmm. uh, Patrice, like Patrice Bergeron, you know, these, you know, 
some of the old school mentality type guys, Marshans, you know, these guys, these guys play um, with a lot of pain. McKinnon, I mean, these guys are, these are the old school type mentality guys that, that I really enjoy playing, but it's, it's night and day difference between hockey in the late eighties, early nineties to today's game without question. 20 years again, the NHL, Eight-time All-Star, right? What do you remember? Your your nine, first nine time, time. nine time, nine time All-Star. All-Star. Do, you, do you remember the first time you were named an All-Star, and 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 what that moment was like to to be around the rest of those uh, players? Of course. Well, my first my first All-Star game was uh, 1991 in mm-hmm. New York. Um, um, I was in New York and heard heard the news that I had made the All-Star All-Star team. And the reason why it was so special because it was in Chicago Stadium, and at the time that we were going through the uh, through that uh, the Iraq War, mm-hmm. with the, uh, you know maybe it was Iran Iraq Iran. Um, it was one of the wars that were happening overseas, and the Gulf War or something like that. And I remember they were talking about canceling the game, and I was all nervous and and freaked out that this might happen. Because, I, I mean, what an unbelievable experience to have your first All-Star game in front of your own fans. And I'll never forget, um, they had the game. I sat in my normal stall, uh, and I used to sit next to uh, Steve, um, uh, Doug Wilson. And I remember, you know, so they took all the equipment out that was uh, in the locker room, and they put Wayne Gretzky right next to me in my first, in my first All-Star game locker room. And it was really crazy because Wayne Gretzky in 1984 asked me to go play for his team in Hall. He came to Boston and took me to breakfast and took me to the game and tried to convince me to go play for the Hall Olympics in 1984. And seven years later, here I am sitting next to him in my first All-Star game. And we talked about it. And it's just, you know, he said, I knew you're I knew you were a good kid. I never saw you play. But, you know, Charlie Henry said you were something special. And now you're here. It's just pretty. It was pretty special moment for me. And then during the game, the the patriotism that the Chicago Stadium showed, it was the loudest I've ever heard that stadium for a national anthem. And every single person in that building either had a sign or a flag, you know, showing their patriotism tour for America that was happening in that war. And, yeah, it was the Gulf War. And um, it, the crazy thing about that game is I had a goal. I had a goal and three assists. And they had voted me the MVP of the tournament with like five minutes left in the game. The problem was in the last three minutes of the game, Vinny Domfus scored three straight goals <laughs> in the last three minutes. And they had to go back up and re revote for the, for the MVP. Um, I think Vinny had four or five goals because of that. So I lost the MVP that year because Vinny Danfus just lit it up in the last three minutes of that All-Star game. Well, well still memorable All-Star game for, to say the least. 1988 to 96, your career with Chicago, you you, you were routinely the, the leading scorer uh, for that team. What do you remember most about that before you got traded eventually in uh, 96 to, uh, to the Phoenix Coyotes? Just the guys that I played with. I mean, Chris Chelios, without without doubt, is um, is one of one of the greatest athletes, leaders, uh, passion, love for for a game that I've ever seen. Um, I learned more from Chris Chelios than any any player that I've ever 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 been around, ever seen, ever you know associated with. Um, you know, playing with him was unbelievable. I got to play with Bob Probert, who is an icon in the game, and knowing what his reputation was over, you know, over his Detroit years to seeing what he was like as a teammate was absolutely amazing. He was one of the greatest, nicest, one of the most humble people I've ever, ever shared a locker room with Bob Probert. And, you know, my, 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 my ability to play with Tony Amonti, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who I played with in high school, we just tore up the high school league and then we tore up the, the national hockey league together. Um, I call Tony Amonti my soulmate of wingers. You know, Tony and I could play blindfolded together. And, um, you know, those are the, those are what really those memories that I remember most about Chicago. What about the Bulls during that time and Michael Jordan's run? I mean, you were there during that same time as well. Did, did, 
did you guys feed off of each other and in, in the successes that they were having? You kind of, you know, enjoyed some of that as well. Oh, absolutely. Chris Chelios and I would watch, we would go down into our locker room for bulls games and walk up the stairs and stand in the little cove where you go out to the, to the court. It's right behind, right behind the, the net, um, the rim. And we would watch pretty much every game. And then, you know, we would hang out with, with Rodman and, and Dennis and uh, Ronnie Harper. And, um, you know, I played golf with, with Jordan many times and it's, it was an amazing time to be in Chicago watching, watching the Bulls shred, you know, shred record after record and Michael Jordan shred record after record. Um, you know, again, you, you, you learn a lot from watching one of the greats and Shelly and I had the ability to watch Michael Jordan perform night in night out for sure. We took advantage of that. So in your mind, he wasn't a horrible player as someone has said recently about him. You mean, you mean, you mean the, the jealous, the jealous Scotty Pippen? Yes. I, I, I think everybody should remember, you should remember when Michael Jordan wasn't there and Phil, Phil Jackson carved out the last play of the game. And, and the, the play was to go to Tony Kukoc to make the last shot. And Scotty Pippen was so mad that he didn't even come out into the court to play the last play. Now, if that doesn't tell you the type of person that Scotty Pippen is and who Scotty Pippen was, was concerned about, um, that then, then nothing will. So Scotty has absolutely no bearing and no right to say anything about one of the greatest athletes of all time. And not just basketball players, I mean athletes. You know, Scottie Pippen is jealous, and Scottie Pippen just wants to be in the news again. He wants he wants to have some attention. But I'll tell you one thing, the one place he should not go is to criticize Michael Jordan in any way, shape, or form. Well, we, we're based in Wilmington, North Carolina, where Jordan is from, so we're, we're probably a little biased uh, ourselves for, for Jordan. Back to hockey here. And uh, for you, again, great run with Chicago, but eventually, again, you get traded to to Phoenix. What was that like for you to to get traded and, and kind of see the business side of, of professional sports from from that standpoint? Well, I, I mean, I hated it. Um, I hated being traded. It was the first time ever where I was expendable. Um, I've never been expendable anywhere. You know, I was always the first pick in everything. Now this is the first time that I was the you know, I was kind of thrown you know thrown away from a team or expendable, and that that. That's hard. That's hard to, to deal with mentally. Granted, I was going to a, a phenomenal city. I was going to a great place where I raised my kids. I went to a place that we uh, we, we taught hockey. We, we built a lot of hockey fans and became very close to the community. And I ended up living in, in Scottsdale for 25 years. So, um, but it would be, it, it would be the one thing that I would change if I went back in my career and how I dealt with uh, my whole contract dispute in 1996 with the, with the Blackhawks and the Wirtz family. Um, because I think without that, I would have been a Hawk for my entire career and things would have been, probably would have turned out a lot different for me. Well, for you though, fifth and sixth all-star appearances while you're in Phoenix as well, was that kind of motivation to, to show that you still had it? As you said, you were kind of cast off, but uh, did it oh. motivate it at all? No, I was motivated regardless of being traded or not. That was just my personality. Um, um, so, you know, I wanted to play well for the team that I was on, no matter what happened. Um, and I didn't say, oh, well, you know, you guys are going to, you guys are going to pay for, for trading me, so on and so forth. Even though, you know, it did hurt them for quite some, some time after. Um, I, I was just going to play. And then I got to, I got to play with Keith Kachuk. I mean, you, there's there's not enough adjectives to describe the type of person and type of player and leader that Keith Kachuk is. Outside outside of Chris Chelios, he's he he and Dirk Graham. I, I've never seen leadership like um, like these three have, have, have portrayed. So, you know, Keith Keith's the the second highest scoring American of all time, and I got to watch him play and how he did it. And it's no, it's no surprise to me watching Matthew and Brady play in the National Hockey League right now, why they are so successful. It's because their dad and their mom, they brought them up the right way. 
to, to, to act the right way, to perform the right way, have respect and, and accountability. So I get to play with some great players in Phoenix too. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you mentioned a lot of big names already. Is, is he kind of the, is he the one that you looked up to the most or you maybe you learned from the most? No, Chelly was the guy. Chelly was the most. What, what Keith, what Keith um, showed everybody and what he portrayed is the accountability, taking care of people, doing what you have to do, showing up to play when it's supposed to be played, doing your job. He was the best at taking care of the trainers, uh, whether we were at home or whether we were on the road. Um, Keith Kachuk made sure that the trainers were tipped well, that they bought them dinner, um, and he made sure that all the other guys did it as well, the young guys. And uh, there was nobody that respected um, the training staff or respected uh, the people that behind the scenes more than Keith Kachuk. And then he'd go out and fight for his teammates and fight for, and, you know, I remember when I got my jaw broken by Darian Hatcher in 1989 or 1999, you know, the next game that we played them the following season, right off the face off, you know, Keith Kachuk goes right at Darian Hatcher and they, they just go toe to toe. Um, and that's five months after my jaw was broken, you know, so that shows you what kind of, what kind of person Keith Kachuk is. Um, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to stick up for his teammates. He's going to be the leader and you better follow him. Cause if you don't follow him, you're going to hear, you're going to hear about it. Yeah. Certainly had your back there. So a, a great run with the, uh, with Phoenix, then a free agent contract with the, the Flyers 2001 and 2005 in Philadelphia. What, what made Philadelphia, the right place for you at that time? Well, I was in Detroit. I was in Detroit um, talking with uh, the Red Wings. Uh, I was talking to three teams at the time. I was talking to the Red Wings, the Bruins, and the Flyers. And I was literally in, in Detroit, and I just finished having dinner with their GM and, and talking. And I, I was talking with my wife about Detroit and you know, my wife's like, my wife rides horses and is like, you know, there's really not many horse facilities around here. It really doesn't suit me very well here in Detroit. And as we're talking, um, Bobby Clark calls me on the phone. It's like 12 o'clock at night, 1130 at night, and says, um, asked if I made my decision. And I said, I have not. He goes, he goes, well, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but we're looking to sign this other player. Um, and we need to know as soon as we can. Because if you're not going to come, we want to sign this guy as soon as we can do it. And I was like, put on the spot. <laughs> so I called my buddy. I called my buddy Rick Tockett. Um, and there's nobody that I trust more with his opinions about the game or about, you know, different teams. His, Tock was one of the best flyers of all time and was actually a Philadelphia flyer at that time. And Tock said, you got to come to the Flyers. We have a great team. They're building a great team. It's a great place to live. It's good for the. It's good for Tracy with the horses. A lot of horse properties, and um, so I decided to go to Philly. And I made up my decision within ten minutes of Bobby Clark's. And I felt bad for Detroit, and um, you know, for the generosity they gave me, but also the Boston Bruins offered me probably. I I think the biggest contract that the Boston Bruins in the history of the Boston Bruins organization back in 2001 i mean they were offering me five million more dollars than philadelphia was offering me um but the reason i didn't pick boston was because they had just traded billy garen and and i'm sitting here thinking i want to win a cup and i want to go to my team that i have the best opportunity to win a cup and then you trade billy garen who was probably one of the key pieces of a team to win a cup and I, that, that was my decision not to go to Boston is because they traded, literally traded Billy Guerin right before I was getting ready to sign. So I ended up going to Philly. And the crazy thing is, is I was going to Detroit. Detroit signs, signs Dominic Hasek instead of me, and they win the Stanley Cup that very same year. I'm like, you're welcome. Yeah, so looking back now, yeah, maybe some regrets, but a great run uh, with Philadelphia All-Star Twice more there, played in your 1,000th uh, game, 1,000th point as well. Do you, do you look fondly at your time with the Flyers as well? And and what was it like with, with you know, we're talking about fans, the fan base in Philadelphia. What was that like for you during your your time there? 
I don't think any I don't think any athlete has bonded with the with the fan base faster than I bonded with the Philadelphia Flyer fan base. Um, my passion for the Philadelphia Flyers fan base is is beyond anything that I can describe in words. Um, they they brought me in, and I think they saw the passion that I had for the game, the way I played the game. And I I, I say I played the game the way that Philadelphia fans root for the game, right? That kind of passion, that kind of expectation, that kind of grit and tenacity, um, the passion that they show, I showed in the game. And I think they appreciated that. There's not a place where I go. There's not a place that I go where I don't see a Philadelphia fan and I don't hug them and they don't say nice things to me. Um, I'll tell you, I my, my popularity in Philly might be just as good as it is in Chicago. And I was in Chicago five years longer than I was in Philly. And that says a lot because my, my, you know, my relationship with the Chicago fans is amazing. I'm just glad they're in separate conferences, right? <laughs> so I, there's no, there's no animosity between the two. So I'm very fortunate to be, be associated with, with so many great cities that have the best fans I've ever seen. San Jose, unbelievable fans. I mean, unbelievable fans. LA Kings, probably the most underrated fan base in the National Hockey League, without question. Sold out building every night. People that are passionate about the game. I've been very, I've been very fortunate. There's no question about that. Yeah, you played for, as you said, great fans and great cities, great franchises as well. Uh, you had a second stint with uh, Phoenix as well, and you, you played for, for Wayne Gretzky. What was that like? Again, you, you talked about him wanting to have you on hold, wanting to, uh, you know, the, the advice he gave you and, and with him in the All-Star game, and now he's your coach. What was that experience like? Yeah, it sucked. <laughs> it absolutely sucked. Um not because of Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky is the is the, one of the is the one of the greatest athletes ever, and I love I love Wayne. Um, I was actually ready to play that year. I wasn't ready to play my year with the Kings. Uh, I was very mad at the you know during the lockout. I didn't prepare. I didn't have a good season with the Kings. A couple other things um, you know behind the scenes that I could not control um, led to a bad season, but. My off season, I got in shape. I got in one of the best, probably one of the best shapes that I've ever been in going into a season into Phoenix. Uh, and I remember I was talking to Daryl Sutter uh, in that in August of that year. And I was going to go play in Calgary. I'm literally on the phone with Daryl Sutter. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to come play for you. And then my phone beeps and I look and it's Wayne. And I said, uh, I said, Daryl, Gretz is calling me. And he goes, call me back. <laughs> and um, you know, Gretz asked me to come play for him, and I couldn't say no this time. You know, I said no to him in '94. I can't say no to Gretz yet again. But I think I really think that Phoenix brought me back to try to maybe sell more tickets rather than to get me to come play. Um, I played on the third, fourth line most of the season. If I even had a line, sometimes I was a healthy scratch. They didn't. They didn't give me. They didn't give me the opportunity to play. Um, like I. Like I think I should have and it turned out to be a a, 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 a bad year I, I just I, I scored a hat trick in the last game of the season and I said to Gretz I said see this is what you've been missing all year he didn't give me a chance <laughs> um, but um, you know Gretz Gretz gets a bad rap for his for his coaching career because um, everybody expects Wayne Gretzky to coach the way he yeah. played and it's totally impossible First of all, he was given a very average team that he can only do so much. And you can't expect Wayne Gretzky to be in the locker room as much as a coach is, is needed and put the time into um, being a coach because Wayne Gretzky is a full-time – being Wayne Gretzky is a full-time job. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, he it's um, it was not a good situation. But he did everything that he possibly could to, to, to help that organization and help that team. He was just dealt the you know – he was just dealt a shitty hand. You said just a one year there, 2006-07, and then to San Jose after that. And, and again, 500th goal. Take us through that. November 10th, 2007, I saw you describe it as an ugly goal. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was the worst goal ever. It was one of my worst in my career. Without, with, with no question about it, one of the worst goals of my career. 
and it was against Phoenix. Mm-hmm. It was against Gretz. So there was a lot of a lot of joy in in doing it against my old team. Um, and I remember the morning of that game, a reporter asked me, if there's an empty net and you're coming down in an empty net, will you put it in the empty net for your 500th goal? And my answer was, no, I, I won't. I don't want to see my 500th goal be an empty net goal. I'd either hold on to it or give it to somebody else to score. So that night I'm playing in the second period and I'm literally coming across the red line and I'm dumping the puck in and I fire it off the glass and it hits the partition in the glass and redirects right towards the net. And the goalie comes out and gets caught behind the net and he comes out to try to stop it, actually stopped it and then had a little jerk reaction and he hit the puck into the net. I was just the last one to touch it from San Jose. It was the ugliest goal. So I think I got punished. I think I got punished by saying I wouldn't put it in the empty net because I don't want an ugly goal. And I ended up having the ugliest goal of my of my career. And it's so funny because the team actually took that pane of glass out and had all the guys signed it and um, gave it to me as a gift for my 500th goal. Um, but I remember that the very next the very next day. We're playing in Phoenix. We had a back-to-back with Phoenix. I came down the left-hand side in the first period, and I just fired a snap, <laughs> a snapshot far side, right underneath the bar in the top corner. It was one of the one of the best shots that I've ever had in my career. So I kind of, in my mind, kind of switched those up in my in my head. But it was fun. There you go. Yeah, five hundred one. A little bit prettier than five hundred, but you still get to, to five hundred. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story there. So the, the third American-born player to reach 500 as well. What what does that mean to you? Because again, as you said, it's 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 Canada's game, but to to be an American-born player and to have you know that distinction's got to be nice. Well, it meant it meant the world to me, um, because here I've gone 18 years without a cup, um, without a major award. Um, I was up in the top, you know, top 10 scoring a lot, but never, never won a major award. I was up for rookie of the year. So this was like, this was like the pinnacle. Like this was getting 500 goals was, you know, it was, it would seem un- unachievable for most Americans. I mean, to be one of four Americans to score 500 goals, I, I still have, I, I still have that, um, you know, that prestige. I have it. I mean, you can't take it away. And I realized it's more important now because I, I was in jeopardy of not even getting there, you know, because in 2007, August, there was nobody calling. Mm. I was four goals, four goals shy of 500. Mm. And at that point, my career was over. If it wasn't for Doug Wilson um, calling me up in late August uh, to ask me to play for San Jose, um, I wouldn't have gotten 500 and I don't think I'd be here talking to you today. There's no question in my mind. Yeah. If you didn't get to 500, would you have thought that your, your career was incomplete? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. I I think that I think in my home and in my, the way that I am, I am built the way that my, that I, the way I tick, um, my mentality, uh, if 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 I if my career ended in in August of two thousand seven, everything that what had that was before would have been meaningless, and in that sense, my life would have been meaningless. And I think I would have gone down a major major um, destructive path um, if it wasn't for Doug Wilson and the San Jose Sharks at that time. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, they they kind of saved your saved your career maybe saved your life at that point as well is that the way you look at it one million percent like there's you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't say it any more clear you couldn't say it any more um precise 100 percent right so finally it comes to an end august 6 2009 uh you decide to retire take us through that moment because again 20 years was it hard to walk away 
this, I, again, this, is, this goes back to my relationship with Doug Wilson again. Um, because everybody talks about retirement and how difficult it is. And uh, I just finished my 20, 20th, 21st year, however you want to do the math. And I had another good season, and I felt like I can play one more. And my, my, my wife wanted me to play another one. My kids were at the age. My kids wanted me to play another year. My teammates wanted me to play another year. And I'm like, okay, I could probably, I could probably squeak out another summer of working out. I could probably, you know, I could, I could get through another year playing, even though, you know, I was tired, my body was beat up. And, and I remember going into Doug Wilson's office uh, after the season was, after the first season was, after that season was over to have our exits exit meetings and uh i'm sitting across the 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 desk from doug and we're looking eye to eye and i said i said i don't know doug i think i want to play one more year and and doug looked at me and goes jeremy sometimes people need to be your your reasoning sometimes people need to be the, the person that says it's over and he goes i think i think you've done everything that you possibly can in the game You've uh, you're you could be one concussion from, you know, from eating out of a straw the rest of your life. You don't know. You don't have anything else to prove. Um, Doug Wilson literally said, you know, I think I think I think you should you should leave on a good note. And I remember when he said that, the, right, like right when he said that, um, that was clarity for me. And I remember that next breath. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting in that chair. And it was like the, the entire weight of the world lifted right off my shoulders. It, it literally, I, I didn't have a care in the world. Um, and I remember I was just, it was the most free that I ever felt in my life. And I knew by how I felt at that moment that it was time to go. And I will tell you since that moment, I have not missed this game one second. I don't wish I played it again. I actually don't even enjoy playing it anymore. Um, I love the game. I love watching it. But there's something about putting on the skates and putting on the gear that just makes my skin crawl. <laughs> and um, I, it, it, and it's, it has a lot. Again, you know, Doug Wilson was that guy that made it, made it okay, made yeah. it right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of good to have when you can walk away and have no regrets from that standpoint. And, and again, you look at your career, 513 goals, 703 assists, nine time all-star. All right. Again, you're, you're not in the hall of fame. Hey, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like the fact that it's, I have like 1600 penalty minutes too. I can't, you can't, <laughs> there you go. 1600 you, you penalty minutes. Yeah. You can't ignore we that. that one out. Mm -hmm. will, will you ever be in the hall of fame? You think, do you need to be in the hall of fame? You know, I at one point I really wanted it. Um, now I I don't even think about it anymore. I think um, you know, for them to pass over me for ten years is um, is it's pretty crazy to tell you the truth. And and whatever their reasoning is, and again, I think again, it's it's the media that has created a, a reputation of mine. Whether I'm a big mouth or I just because they don't. I, I say what I feel and I'm honest and sometimes it's controversial. Um, you know, I, I see the guys that they're, that they're inducting and, you know, I, I just got to, I just got to shake, I just got to shake my head and be like, all right, whatever, you know, I just, at, at one point I really, really wanted to be in the hall of fame and, you know, I'd be, I'd be lying to you to say if I, I didn't want to, but I don't think about it anymore. Um, it's become, it's become a political thing for me now, I think. And I see other guys that should be there in front of me. I mean, Alexander Mogilny should be there. Um, I think, I think Theo Fleury should be there. I think um, Curtis Joseph, Curtis Joseph should be there. Maybe Pierre Turgeon should be there. Um, I, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't know the, the I don't know the qualifications. I don't know the, ex, the expectations. I don't know. I mean, I think my career speaks for itself. Um, you know, third third in the history of of Americans and goals. Um, third in American history and uh, fourth in American history in points. 
um, you know, Olympic teams, world, world, uh, world junior teams. Listen, I don't, I don't have to go through my, my repertoire, but, um, you know, I really feel bad. I, I feel bad that my dad didn't get to see it. Mm. My dad passed in 2021 and, you know, there wasn't a bigger fan of mine than my dad. Nobody sacrificed more than my dad to allow me to get there. My mom, my mom's still alive, but my dad, my dad won't get to see it if it ever happens. And that bums me out that, you know, that that's what I, that's what really kind of gets me a little bit more irritated because my dad deserved to see that happen. So, and you know, it might happen someday. I'm not holding my breath anymore. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, it is, it would be an unbelievable, unbelievable honor, but, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's watered down a little bit now. Well, if it happens, I'm sure your dad will be part of that, uh, that speech and, and certainly will be there for you as well, uh, in spirit, uh, whether that happens or not, again, your career, you, you look back on it, outstanding career. And then you moved on from that, got into broadcasting, other things as well. What, what was that transition like for you going from the ice to, to, okay, what is next now? Well, it actually wasn't, it wasn't that easy. Um, it was easy to be on camera. It was easy to have the personality, but it wasn't easy to learn, you know, the ins and outs of television. It wasn't easy to, uh, to be able to have people talking in your ear while you're trying to get your opinions out and having two minutes of opinions and try to slam them into 20 or 30 seconds of a, of a spot. So, and when you don't have the vocabulary to fill, you know, some of the, you know, some of the, 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 the wording that you wanted to have in a certain, in a certain rant. Um, but I love being on television. I love being able to go into somebody's living room on their television tell you know teach the game tell them my opinion of the game entertain them you know embarrass myself with some of the things that i did um you know to, to make people laugh to make people um have a conversation to make people have debates arguments or agreements was great for me i really enjoyed that um so i was very, i i, I love the television aspect um you know i don't know if i would ever do it again but uh I, I think I think I brought a lot of perspective. I think I brought a lot of entertainment. I think I brought a lot of uh, creativity and a lot of realism to uh, to the to the to the television. I think people are missing right now. Not only broadcasting, but you did some acting as well, right? You, a couple parts here and there, and uh, I don't know you and Vince Vaughn kind of have a a connection as well. Yeah, '94 Sega man. It's done. You know, it's not so much me. It's Ronick. I'm the best. I am. I am the best. NHL, NHL, um, PlayStation gamer of all time. And, you know, it was end up being swingers with Vince yep. Vaughn and, you know, all that, all that crazy stuff. And even though there was a glitch in the 94 Sega game, it's still, you can't take away, you can't take away that honor of being the best, uh, Sega Genesis, um, gamer of all time. And I hear that more than anything. I get that, you know, we used to play Chicago and I, I, I got through, you know, college, you know, you know, betting with Chicago, or it, it was a, it was a rule in our dorm. You couldn't be Chicago because of Jeremy Roenick. And it was all really cool. It was, it's, it's a good part of my career and a good part of my, of my, my history. And I'm, I'm proud that I was, uh, that, that I am representing, represented really well in a, in a video game. But, you know, I did, I did acting with, you know, I did Arliss, you know, I was the most, uh, the most appeared athlete on Arliss on HBO. You know, I did, um, um, Ghost Whisperer with, uh, you know, uh, who, what else I've done all sorts of different things. I did Bones with, uh, with Boreans and did a lot of different things. T Timothy Hutton, um, you know, I was on, on with T Timothy Hutton. I, I did a lot of acting. Actually, my first acting job was on uh, Days of Our Lives back in the early 90s. <laughs> and um, um, so I've, I've been on a, on, a, on a soap opera too. So I enjoy that part. A, a wide range of, of acting for you. you. You also, you're an author and you've got a whiskey out now, right? Whiskey in the wild, not your grandpa's yeah. whiskey. What can you tell us about the whiskey? Yeah. It's not your, it's not your average grandpa's whiskey. So I, so during the pandemic, my friends and I decided we wanted to start something interesting, something new. And obviously the, you know, 
you see all these different spirits coming out, people with vodkas, people with uh, tequilas. And I thought it'd be a cool idea to do something that was different and something that everybody can enjoy in, in an alcohol and in the whiskey. Whiskey was that popular thing. My wife doesn't like whiskey. So I wanted to create something that she would drink with me that we can have a, I can have a cigar and we can sit in front of a campfire or in front of a fire and enjoy a nice glass of whiskey before bed or after dinner. So uh, my partner, who was a, a big a big taste and flavor guy, um, he created a chocolate whiskey and a chocolate orange whiskey mm. that without question is one of the most um, satisfying and unbelievable gratifying flavors of a chocolate and chocolate orange whiskey that you'll ever have no burn a great taste a perfect taste of chocolate with a little taste with a good taste of whiskey and let me tell you something um if you haven't tried it yet i can guarantee you guarantee you that you will become addicted to whiskey in the wild after your first sip i've i've been all over the country with tastings I've had tens of thousands of people try it and I literally can, t I can count on one hand how many people say they, that they didn't prefer it one hand. So I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, you know, we, packaging too, right? With a bottle and a flask. Yeah. So we did something very cool. We put, we, we created a bottle, which took us two years to create. Um, thanks for showing that on, on the, on the page there. And we wanted to do something where, we wanted people to take it with them. We wanted to, we want them to, you know, take it on a camping trip and be able to, you know, put it into a flask and take a hike, go to the top of the mountain and celebrate your, your accomplishments with a, with a shot from the flask where we don't have to carry the bottle around with you. We think the packaging is phenomenal. It makes for a fantastic gift for father's day, for Christmas, for mother's day, even for, for even for groomsmen at, at weddings. Uh, you know, for homecomings, you're going for a party. Instead of bringing a bottle of wine, you can bring a bottle of whiskey in the wild and you get a nice flask on top of it. So when that bottle is gone, that flask can be used over and over and over again. But it's the flavor inside. So I, we always say the bottle will catch your eye, but the flavor will capture your heart. And there's no question about it. I will I will put my whiskey up against any blend of whiskey, and I bet you, I bet you I win 95% of the time. Whiskey in the wild, you got to check it out. Why, why is it not Styles? Was it was that your nickname, Styles? How'd you get that nickname? <laughs> Keith Kachuk. Keith Kachuk, because I showed up at one of my first games with a uh, – with We lost you there for a second again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I showed up in my first game with a lavender suit on, and um, he just laughed at me. And then I came the next, I think, with uh, with um, a, some sort of green, like green, um, not so not green, but um, whatever the lighter color of green would be called. And uh, he's like, Jesus, we should call you Styles. And I'm like, hey, and it just it just hit. And stuck so styles styles was the name uh that that keith kachuk uh gave me back in uh, 1997. so your style off the ice not on the ice Let, let's get back on the ice here for a second i've got to ask you the stanley cup about to start the eight seed florida going up against uh las vegas uh do you have a take do you, do you have you watched the playoffs so far do you who do you think will will raise lord stanley's cup well, I think going into it, I would have to think that Vegas is the is going to be the favorite. Uh, their defense is so good. They're, they've shown their offense is, is very, very strong through four lines. Um, their top guys are all, all producing, and even their, even their third and fourth lines are creating offense. Um, they're big. They're fast. I mean, the, the way that they, that they got rid of Edmonton Oilers, who probably, probably were the favorite in the West, um, and then the way that they beat the Dallas Stars, not only in the series, but I think in game six, the, the, the Golden Knights played one of the most perfect games I've ever seen played in, in playoff history. Um, their tenacity, their 
their puck control, their passing, their support, their decision-making, uh, the way that they worked. I mean, Dallas, Dallas looked like a peewee hockey team in that game. It was 6 nothing. Dallas had 12 shots with four minutes left to go in the game. It was the most over, I mean, just overbalanced game that I've ever, that I remember ever seeing and watching. And it was all because of how well the, that, the, the Knights played. It had nothing to do with Dallas. The Knights just absolutely just tore them apart. So I'd have to think the Knights are going to have the, if they play like that, they're going to win for sure. But when you have a Matthew Kachuk and the way that Bobrovsky is playing, you know, the Knights are going to see some, going to see a, a, a dynamic with Florida that they have not seen yet. And that's a key, that's a Matthew Kachuk dynamic because right behind them is Sam Bennett. Right behind him is, is Barkov. Right behind him is, you know, Berhage. Um, if, if Bobrovsky has to be, Bobrovsky's probably the, the MVP of the playoffs right now, but he has to play even better now in order to win this series. And I think if he does, it's going to be, it's going to be a barn burner. With Matthew Kachuk there with Florida, is that your, your sentimental favorite? Is that who you're, you're kind of pulling for in a sense? Well, the Vegas Golden Knights are my favorite team in the National Hockey League, you know, without, without saying Chicago or Philly. Um, but I got a root for Matthew Kachuk. I mean, I've, I was there when he was born. Um, I, I grew up watching him shoot tape balls in the locker rooms. You know, I've, I've watched him get his diaper changed in the locker room, him and Brady. So I have a very, very huge spot in my heart for the Kachuk family. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't pray that uh, Matthew Kachuk won a cup. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, you on social media? How can people follow you? We saw the whiskey. How else can people maybe follow you and see what you're doing these days? Yeah. So Twitter, it's uh, Jeremy underscore Ronick. Uh, on Instagram, it's just Jeremy Ronick. And whiskeyinthewild.co is uh, is our our Instagram on whiskey in the wild. So pretty much basic. Just go on, look up my name, and my stuff is going to pop up right away. And the check mark really tells you it's me because there are a couple of imposters out there that uh, think they can be me, but they can't. <laughs> you are the one and only JR, other than JR Equipment, our producer and uh, show creator behind the scenes here. Another here. great guy, another great JR. There Fantastic you go, there guy. you go. Uh, a show full of JRs. I'm just Mike. Uh, JR, Jeremy, we appreciate your time and, and uh, great stories and wish you the best of luck in, in with the whiskey and uh, – you know, hopefully we we'll see you in the hall at some point. It'd be great to to hear your speech. And again, I'm sure uh, you'll recognize and remember your dad during that speech as well. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate the sentiments and and everything and the accolades. I um, you know, the compliments are very uh, very much appreciated. Had a fun, had a lot of fun, Mike. Thank you. Well, another great story here in the front row. Our thanks to Jeremy Roenick for spending a little time with us here today. And once again, we invite you to subscribe, to like, and to share our episodes. We'll have more great guests coming your way soon. It's In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.